0: Good morning, church. If you have your Bibles, you can turn them out. Open to Book of Galatians. We've been going through this great little letter that Paul wrote to a church back in his day in the the region of Galatia. And we've been learning as we go through the book how he has been emphasizing justification by faith alone and not to try to earn through our works uh, a position before Christ. Now, I titled the message today, the apex. And the reason I did that was because he is going to talk about the apex identity that you could have in the universe. Now, if you don't know what apex means, I always think about when I'm watching some nature video, and it's, it's talking about animals in a region. And then it will say something like, the apex predator in this part of the world is the Siberian tiger. Or if it's out in the ocean, it's the apex predator is the killer whale. And that means it's at the top. It's at the top. Nothing else is hunting that. Now, we're not talking about predators this morning, but we are talking about what's at the top. And we live in a day and age where we hear a lot about different identities, and I wrote here, at the start of my notes, the greatest position in all of the created universe is to be in the family of God, a child of the king of the universe and an heir to that kingdom. What other identity could ever o- overshadow that? Paul destroys man's proclivity for tribalistic identities. That is what he's going to drive at today. As we go through this passage, I'm going to read it right now, you'll see in some parts where he talks about different kinds of identities, but the emphasis is going to be on sons of God. Now, I'm going to pick up in chapter 3, verse 26, you can follow along with me, it says, For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus, and if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. And then in chapter 4, he continues, I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, so you are no longer a slave but a son, and if a son, then an heir through God. Father, I just pray as we look at this passage today that the writings of Paul, led by your Spirit, would speak to us, shape within us an understanding of our value in being sons of God and heirs to your kingdom. In Christ's name, amen. Now, I'm going to break this into three simple parts. The first is I'm going to talk to you about that apex identity, which is sonship. Sonship in the divine family, in the kingdom of God. Secondly, I'm going to talk to you about how this sonship, sonship is something that comes, we mature into it. It comes with, an, with time. Okay, We age into that. I'll explain that. And then lastly, what we're going to finish with is How we can enjoy the freedoms of being sons of God, of being of of having this sonship. So let's start with the first, which is the apex identity of the universe: sonship. And in the first verse, Paul. First couple verses I read, Paul used this phrase, "Put on Christ," and that word "put on" is like putting on clothes. And so I put here on the first point under the apex identity, you are clothed with a new identity. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Now what this, this new identity, sonship, how do you get it? And he says there, through faith. As many of you who were baptized, and it's through faith, and we've talked about this, this through this, this series, that Paul emphasizes that we put a faith, we believe in our heart, and we say it with our mouth, that we believe what Christ did, his work on the cross. There's two ways that we've talked about through this. We can work by trying to keep all the rules and, and not be a, a, a rebel and, and break commandments, Or we can put our faith in the work that Christ did for us on the cross. And he says, if you put your faith in what Christ did on the cross, it's through that that we are baptized, he says, into uh, the body of Christ. How many? He says, as many of you, whoever, however many it is. Today, Mr. Jeff said, we're going to go down there. We're going to baptize people, right? How many? As many who are baptized are going to be placed into the family of God. Now, when we go down there today, we'll talk a little bit about this. The baptism is symbolic of. What happened to Christ? There's nothing about the baptism. We go, we take the person, they go under the water, and then they come back up. There's nothing that is magical or ultra-religious about the water that washes away sins on the inside or something like that. We don't believe that God's Word teaches that. We believe that it's symbolic. It's an external symbolism of, of something that's happened internal. What, what happened on the inside? I came to belief in here. I believed In here, I said it with my my mouth, Jesus Christ is Lord, that God raised him from the dead. In the same way that that Jesus went into the grave, we go into the water. In the same way that we come out of the water, it's symbolic because Jesus came out of that grave. And it's saying that we put our belief that he did that and that one day we too will live again and we will live eternally with him. That is this baptism thing and when so when do we become sons he says as many of you through faith baptized because there's always a moment where it's, it's official i had some friends when i lived in la who said we're going to adopt some girls from china and they went through this whole process, right where first of all, you fill out an application and then they vet you and they make sure you 're a good family and then they, they go over to China and they were there 's a whole process and then but there comes a moment where it 's official where i, I 'm not sure what it 's like in every country it could be different, maybe they sign the paper, but then the kids they 're brought and they 're brought into that family. And what Paul is saying is there's a moment where it's officially you become sons. And, and that moment, he's saying, is when we are baptized. Now, it's not the water baptism per se. It is, it is a spiritual thing where God takes you and places you into his family. You are now in my family. And then we say that to everybody when we go down and we put people in the water. We all go, ah, they put their faith through faith and God has put them in the family. That's what baptism is. Now, what happens then? Because he says, as many of you through faith who believed, baptized, then he says, you put on Christ. So, whoever down there goes in the water and comes out, they're baptized, then he says, whoever, because he says, as many, you put on Christ. And what does that mean? What does it mean to put on Christ? Like to put on clothes, right? It's a new identity, essentially. And I'm going to break it down here, but just in simplistic form right now, you could say, like, I have a set of clothes. I'm going to put them off. I'm going to put on a new set of clothes. That's what it is. There's, there are identities that you connect with, who you are. But this identity is the new one. That is the most important identity that you will ever have. And this idea of put on... Let's let's talk about that for a second. Clothing. Clothing communicates something about who you are. I mean, if a man walked in here and he had a, a police hat on with blue clothes and a badge, you would go, that's a policeman. He didn't even have to introduce himself. I just saw the clothes and it communicated to me something about who he was. And you could say that about a fireman. You could say that about a nurse. You could say that about a doctor. You could say that about a construction worker. Even today, there are Not just profession, but you might look at someone and their clothes are very expensive. It might communicate something about them. Their clothes might be raggedy. It might communicate something about them. It could be male clothes. It could be female clothes. But clothing communicates something about who you are. And he says, when you put on Christ, it communicates this new identity of who you are in Christ. Now, clothing not only communicates, but it facilitates close relationship with Christ how close we are to him. The proximity of relationship is now very close. The Bible says, before you were estranged, you were alien, foreign, separated from him. Baptized now, you're a son in the family, you are close. And just think about clothes again. What is it? What, clothes. We take them everywhere we go. They're very close to us. There are some possessions I have, I put over there in my house, I never get them out except for when I might need them. But my clothes, every day I get up, they're with me and they go with me. And my glasses, I could put them here, I walk away from them, okay. You don't want me to do that with my clothes, right? No, shake your heads, yeah, you don't want that, right? Clothing is, thank you for that amen. Clothing keeps us close. Right, And it's saying we are close now to Christ, where before we were far off. Clothing also not only communicates and facilitates this close relationship, but it imitates. It imitates. Because clothing displays. We are to look like Christ. In other words, this shows what we do. Our virtue. Our actions. Our choices are to be Christ-like. So when we say we put on Christ, we put on a way of living that imitates Him. How did He deal with the marginalized? How did He deal with leaders that were bad? How did He, you see what I'm saying? We look at what He did in His life and we say we're to imitate that. We're supposed to, to be like Him. And clothing does that as well. There's an imitation just like You know, uh, a a little boy whose father is a policeman, he might say, I want to give me some clothes. I want to be like my dad. And he puts them on. He wants to be like him. We are to learn what it is about Christ that we need to put on display in our lives to be a salt and a light to a lost world. So clothing communicates, it facilitates, it imitates and then this is a theological term. It propitiates. Propitiation means God is satisfied with the work of Christ. And because of what Christ did on the cross, something happens to us. There's a covering that comes over us, and it's the righteousness of Christ. To propitiate is favor regained because of our adornment. It's almost like when your kid is muddy, been playing outside, and it's raining, and their clothes are just... Ugh, you are not coming in my house. You go over here. You take that off. You put something else on that covers you that's not going to mess the house up. Now you come in. We've been clothed with something new. We've adorned with something new. And this is the thing about God. You can go all the way back to Genesis. And God has been covering up our nakedness ever since the beginning. Adam and Eve, when they sinned, what happened to them? God covered them. And there's something about the work of Christ that he comes... That when God looks at us, he doesn't see our attempts to look good, to keep his rules. What he sees is my son, what he did. The righteousness of my son covers us, and that makes us acceptable to him, to come into his house. This is what he means by to put on Christ. Now, that's only the first couple sentences. I want to keep moving through this because... This new identity, the the apex identity of the universe, sonship. We're clothed with this new identity. But then also Paul's going to tell us that because of that, you are Christian before anything else. It is the apex identity. Now, when you walked in here today, you you may be a person who thinks about your identity in a particular way. Um, I have pride because of the position I have at work. I have a feeling of superiority because of how smart I am. I have a confidence in myself because I'm good looking and I have charm. You see what I'm saying? Or you may feel inferior because you're the opposite of any of those things. But Paul's going to work through a list here and show you the displacement of every single identity because he goes on and he says, in Christ, we put on Christ. Now that we put him on, there is neither Jew Nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, and there is neither male nor female. And he's gonna he's gonna deconstruct our tendency to grab onto identities and and make them the most important thing about us. So in this little section, he says, Christian before culture. Right? And we live in a day and age where a lot of people. Take a lot of pride in culture. This is who we are as a people. This is our history as a people. And we can't lose that. And there's nothing sinful about that. Only if somehow that ascends higher than your identity in Christ. And that can happen. It can displace it. And Paul says, Christian before culture. And his example is Jew and Greek. Jews thought of themselves as superior. So you have two different cultures, two ethnicities that come together, and one might feel superior, one might feel inferior, but he says, no, there's this unity in Christ, this new identity. You put on these new clothes, and you look at each other in a way that there's an equality, and equality is found in salvation and grace in Christ and his work. Now, we know that in the world, you can look, this this is true, the West And Western countries often feel superior to non-Western countries in the flip-flop of that. And this means that in our modern churches today, you can't ever bring that into the church. It should not exist. And Paul says, Christian before culture. And then he goes on, he says, Christian before class. Okay, now class, um, if you were to travel the islands out here, you may find at an island you visit to that they still have Caste systems where there are people that live at the highest caste, and there are people that live in a, this caste, and then there's a lower caste. I visited an island; they had four castes, you know. And in that, it's like the, the the people at the top they have a superiority; they're in the top. And you know, in the West, we may not have that, but we have it in a different ways. We have the middle class. Well, I make this much income, and that's my class. And we look at the people that are in this upper class. They make more money, and we think of them. Well, they got it better off than us. And then there's the lower class. You know, they're more poor. We still have class. And Paul says, when we put this new identity of Christ on us, Christian before class, we could never look at someone from another class and think of them in ways that are superior or inferior. Primarily because... There's an equality about you. You both deserve to be separated from God for eternity. And yet God has done this thing where he sent his son and he died on the cross for you. And this new identity now, he's put you into his family. And now you're brothers and sisters in Christ. And you look at them. They are family and they are also inheritance of the kingdom. There's an equality there found in Christ. Christian before class. And lastly, he says... Neither male nor female. Christian before gender. Now, um, by the way, he is not ever saying that you, the Greek ceases to be Greek. The Jew ceases to be Jew. You don't lose that completely. It just isn't higher than our identity in Christ. And here, where he says male or female, he's doing the same thing. Christian before gender. And he goes on right here to say, um, for, all, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Now, I think this is fantastic because, number one, even though this was written long ago, we we see its application today. Because today, if you are part of the world, you can see that there's an ever-increasing desire to identify in tribalistic ways, even in the West. In the West, we have a push for, I want to identify, I'm a woman, so I'm going to lift that up. I'm on women's rights, and that's, that's what I really care about. I'm going to identify with my ethnicity and who we are as a people, and we see a push that is a value within culture. And Paul's point of emphasis is to say is that tribalistic values like that come into the church and are subservient to our identity in Jesus Christ. And we can never look at one another with an inequality like that. And you might go, well, pastor, because I know this has happened. Somebody came up to me and talked about this. They're like, you know, it's like this was written long ago. You can see it says sons. That seems, is he, he's kind of misogynistic. He's kind of, he's kind of, it's not fair. So you're looking at the women in the room and you're saying your sons. And this is where I go, hold on, because God knows what he's doing. See, I, I, I studied the Greek language and I know with what great specificity it has. In fact, God in his wisdom, because I've studied Spanish, I've studied some other languages, Greek is so specific that it really nails things down where God's telling us something with that specificity. The reason why he doesn't say daughters is because he's telling them something about the women. Because in that day, women had no inheritance. They could never inherit And when he looked at the church in that day, and he looked at the women and said, you are sons, he was communicating something to them about, you have a value different than the culture of that day. You have an inheritance. And by the way, men, he says, you are the bride. The church is the bride of Christ. So we get it there. He's fair. There's an egalitarian approach in this valuing of men and women in the Bible, and I always, when people always talk about, well, you know, the Bible doesn't value women in the way, it does. It was very counterculture. Women had, they couldn't even give testimony in a court. If you're a lawyer in here and you had a case and your star witness was a woman, you'd be like, ugh, we're going to lose. No one will believe her. And the Bible, uh, Christ flipped that. The very, if you were here for Easter, who was the first person that saw the risen Lord? A woman. And she went back to tell everyone, "Well, what should have happened is they all would have went, "That's a crazy woman." No one believes them, but they didn't. Like there's all these ways in which the Bible lifts women up and men in, into this. There's an egalitarian approach to this because our value is found in the same place, and it's in Jesus Christ and what He did for us. Now, this is the, the apex. Identity. It should be the identity you care about the most that rises up within you higher than anything else. Okay? Now, the next thing that, that he's going to say here is that you are an heir to a kingdom. Because the very last line here in, in chapter 3, he says, And you are Christ's then. You are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. And we talked about this last week. This promise thing. You remember Abraham, right? He went to Abraham. He made the covenant with him where he walked you know, that path with the fire. And Abraham, a sleep fell over him. It had nothing to do with Abraham. It was everything to do with God who said, I'm making a covenant promise with you based upon who I am. My attributes and my qualities were going to make sure that this happened. Your promise is secure. It's based on me. And now what Paul is saying is if you put your faith in Christ, you're an heir to that same promise he gave. Abraham a spiritual inheritance we may not be of the same ancestry as Abraham but spiritually we can be and in this section this is where we find equality equality is achieved now get this through our privileges which is again the opposite of what we hear in culture today in culture, we're often condemning privileges. They're a person of privilege, and, and we need to make things like this, and we're such an emphasis on this equality. And when I read Scripture, the one place that I see that you find equality is in Jesus Christ. Because nobody could ever uphold themselves higher. We're both the same. We're both condemned to hell, saved by grace, based on nothing that we've done. And that makes us equal in that sense. But we're also, we also are equal that we get the same privileges. And he gives them to us. Through Galatians, he's been saying this. But just right here in this section, we have in verse 14. Uh, uh, we talked about this in the sermon past. In chapter 3, we have the privilege of receiving the Spirit. What did I say at the beginning? Everyone who's baptized receives the Spirit. The Holy Spirit comes to live within you. He's going to give us a little bit more about that in a second. But the other privilege is that we're also all made sons, everybody. And we're afforded the same privileges in that sonship. So one of uh, the writers I was reading said, the privileges we get in the gospel are so stupendous that they have to surpass the greatest earthly merited or inherited advantages. How can I look down on someone who is clothed with Christ? Why would I ever be jealous of anyone else when I am a son of God? Now the question here, and I'm just going to fold this in a little bit, is, is Paul's first concern here broad and pushing for societal change? Or is his focus on the gospel bringing down the types of barriers we see in culture that may exist in the church? And my answer to that is he is concerned about the church right here. The way to change the world is to grow the church, to bring people into salvation, to put Christ on. If you have A hundred thousand Christians in a country, what kind of impact can they have? If you have a billion Christians in a country, what kind of impact can it have? The way to change a culture is to be Christ, live Christ, put Christ on, go out into that lost culture, love on it in a way that builds relationships to bring them into this conversation about, do you know who Christ was? Do you know what he did for you? That's how you change the world. It's not through, and I'm not trying to step on any landmines here, political activism per se. But God's, God's movement throughout history is, is in his people and in the church. And the thing he cares about here is that the values of the world are not coming in to the church and changing the church. And so he's going after these identities. He's going after these uh, attack of privilege. And he's saying you are equally privileged in Christ, and that identity as a son should be held up greater than anything else. Now, this is the apex identity in the universe. Now, the next question here is, because what Paul's going to talk about, my second point is that we come of age in sonship. Because he's going to use an example of a child growing up into inheritance in a wealthy family. Let me just read it again. In chapter 4, it says, I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. And so what he does is he goes to an example of a child who's born into a very wealthy family, and there's an inheritance waiting. The, the, the parents have passed away, so he is going to be the one that inherits. But he's too young. He's three, four years old. He cannot run the estate and the properties that are being left to him. And so in the illustration he gives, we talked about this some last week, was what is set over him are guardians or managers and they're going to help bring him up to a certain age. And then when he comes of age, and that's what I want you to grab onto, when he comes of age, he will take over. And then he will, it will pass. He won't be under that anymore. And he will have a freedom uh, as, the, as that heir in, in the inheritance. So here's what we get under this point. Number one is that some, sonship is subject to guardianship for a time. When you are growing up as a child into you're going to become the heir, there's a guardianship over for a time period. That's what Paul says. And in that time period, what are the qualities that we see? Number 1, you're not yet independent. You are not yet completely independent. Because number 2, people are over him. These come right out of the verses, verse 1 and verse 2 of chapter 4. And then also That there is a a time, the time for this to change is not set by us. In other words, he says here, because look what he says in verse 4. He says, but when the fullness of time had come, God... So when that little child is like, you're you're the heir. There's an inheritance for you. And the child says, okay, I want it to be when I'm 10. No. Okay, how about 15? 15. No, actually, those terms have been set by the Father. It was all of His. He's giving it to you. He sets the terms. Okay, when is that? And what Paul is saying there is there's a time where there's not independence, when there's a guardianship over you, and then there's a time where you come of age and the freedom is given to that heir. And the Father sets the time. Okay? So you're saying, Pastor, how does this relate to sonship? Well, you know, the Romans, um, was in, when Paul's writing these letters, you know, Rome is in existence. If you were to study that culture, the average, uh, 14. If you had a kid that was in that scenario, he's going to grow up 14. 14, he would, be, he would take the, the reins, but not all of them, because 14 is still pretty young. He would begin to exercise his... Uh, newfound authority as the heir of what's been left for him. But it wasn't until the age of around 24 or 25 where the guardianship would be completely removed and he was totally independent then. But what I'm giving you is that those are times that are set by the Father, right? And what Paul says here is just like your sonship, and he uses this term, the fullness of time. And what he's talking about is when Christ came. So before I get to that, I want to say something, though, because under this inheritance is subject to guardianship, right? The next part about this is that without sonship, our state is one of slavery. He says, look, you know, as a child, you're no different from a slave. And this is uh, what we find through scripture as we study it. In fact, he uses this term because he says enslaved to what? He says the elementary principles, right? And what is he talking about? He's going to talk about this later in chapter 4. But I could go down to verse 8 just real quick and, and read it. It says, formerly when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. And he uses his word nature. So let me talk to you for a second about spiritual slavery. Because Your natural state is to rebel against God and what is good. You may get it right sometimes, but you cannot get it right every single time of your life. And when you break God's law, when you break his rules, then we put ourselves in a position of being judged by him. My dad used to use an illustration. He said to me, he says, Kevin, you know, if you brought into the room a hungry lion that hasn't eaten and he's famished. And over here you put a table up and on the table you put all these vegetables, you know, a vegetarian's delight. And then over here you set up another, another table and you got T-bone steaks and hamburgers and sausages and hot dogs. And he comes into that room. Where do you think he would go eat? I said, dad, he's gonna go eat the meat. Why? Because he's a meat eater. That's right. His nature is, he is a meat eater and if you son come into a room and over here you have god's laws his rules it says have no other gods before me do not covet do not murder do not steal and over here you have um rebellion what would you choose well sometimes we get it right over here but we drift over here we Bend this way, because our nature is sinful. Do you see that? In the same way that a carnivorous lion, his nature is to choose meat, when given the choice, our nature is to choose rebelling against God. And there's a way in which that enslaves us, because we can't break it. We just we just can't. We can get it right sometimes, but not all the times. And even our, our choices are enslaved, but also... Merit is enslaved. How we try to make up for those bad choices—it's like we, we know we're supposed to do that, but we've come over here and we've broken it. And now somewhere in the middle, we're going to do stuff to to get us back over here. We're going to go to church. We're going to do good things. We're going to be philanthropic, and you know we'll lift that up, and God will look at us as that's good. This is works. Our works are like filthy rags. The Bible says. No matter how much good we do, we mix so much bad in there. It's bad. And so. Our nature, we see, without this sonship is one of slavery. I love what uh, Tim Keller had to say about this because he talks about how we become sons, but we still live like slaves. And in this thought, he says, we fail to experience freedom and joy Though we are rich in the gospel, adopted children of God with complete and direct access to the Father, we can go back to relating to Him only through our record, only through our moral merits. It's as though we are given a gift, but we give it back to the giver so that we can strive to earn it. That has been Paul's goal, is to draw us away from A works orientation and to rely solely on one work, and that is the work of His Son on the cross. Now, the last thing I'm going to say under this point of coming of age is that there is a time that the Father has set. That time in history would have been when the Son came. He goes on to say this. He goes on to say, uh, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law. So there was, in the timeline of history, the great meta-narrative of mankind, the fullness of time came. That's 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 a term to say that God sent His Son at that moment. It says He was born of a woman. He's born under the law. That communicates something. Every man and woman are born under the law, meaning we have to keep all of the law. We, we talked about this. Remember the sermon called The Cursed? You will keep this, you will keep this, or you're cursed. You will keep this, or you're cursed. If we don't keep it, we are cursed. Cursed being separated from God forever. And in this scenario, what we see is the fullness of time. He came, he's under the law, but he's the only, only man that ever lived that kept all of the law. And because of that cleanness, he was able to go and offer himself in our place, the substitute. Remember that message? The substitute in our place to be judged so that we don't have to be judged. The condemnation, there's no condemnation for those who have put their faith in Christ Jesus. Now, there was a time in history, but I also want to tell you there was a time in your life personally and experientially. Today we're going to baptize Some people, that means that their time in their life that they're living came where they believed in here and put their faith in what Christ did. So there's a time is what he's saying. Now, I'm going to wrap this up. We're going to get to the last point, which is this. Because we see the apex identity in the universe is sonship. We come of age in sonship. And lastly, we enjoy freedom in sonship. And that's a little bit what Keller was getting at, that sometimes we have this freedom in sonship, but we're going back to trying to to do works, to to make ourselves look good in God's eyes. But here in this last section, he's going to talk about how we enjoy freedoms in sonship. Let me just read it to you. And as I read it, I want you to, to pick up on how many times he uses the word son. Okay. But he says that he sent his son to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, so you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. And in this last section, you see um, how we can enjoy freedoms and sonship. And the first is this, you have the right as sons, you have rights under, under sonship. Um, full rights. This word redeemed, it says, I sent the Son to redeem. It is a purchasing word. And that word came out of slave markets. It says, if you went and there was the, the stage and the slaves up there and you bought them and you bring them, now you own them. Jesus came. The price he paid was his life. But it appeased God and the judgment that we should have received. And now he owns us. And he makes us sons. But there's something else miraculous. Because I said full rights. Not just partial rights, but full rights. So you, in order to really understand this. Because here, have you ever seen a movie where, where the guy's in prison and finally the day comes and he's going to get out of prison, right? And then he comes and... They march him out, and they open the gate, and he steps out into that world, and then the gate shuts behind him, and he's done with prison, and he turns around, and and he looks out, and there's a whole world, and there's no one there to meet him, and he's, he's on his own. He's got to find his way on his own. He's done with that, but now he has to deal with this, right? And see, what happens with our sonship is God comes... And he pays the penalty here so that we're brought out like this. The door opens and we step out. And now as that closes, and we don't, we don't have that anymore. Now we got this, but we don't have to make it on our own. Because now Jesus takes us to the estate. It's as if the prisoner's been brought out, and the one who got him out takes him to a, a lavish estate with a huge mansion and says, this is your new place. This is, you are in my family now. And that's the, that's the, the, the marvelous and, and wonderful thing about sonship, is it's both of those. It's not just dealing with our sins, but it's now bringing us into his family where we have this rich inheritance. That's why he keeps using this word heir. You're an heir. Now, not only that, because we have this, the full rights as sons, but... He says something else. Okay? Let me read it. He says, Because you are sons of God, he sent the Spirit of his Son into our hearts. That is also one of the things that happens. So, just so you can see theologically how this works, right? Jesus Christ dealt with our legal problems, the external part of it, but we're not left alone. He sends the Spirit of the Son to dwell in our hearts, and now the Spirit helps us internally. So Christ helped us with the external issues we have, and now we're in the family, but it's like, now we're in the family, but i got a lot of issues. i got a lot of issues to deal with, a lot of struggles. He says, I'm going to give you help. I'm going to give you the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit will come and live in you. He says, in, this Holy Spirit, in our hearts, He comes and He lives within us. And then you know what He says, And you cry out, Abba, Father. You say, well, what does that mean, Pastor? Well, Abba is a word, it's like an infant word for father. It's like Papa or Daddy, right? And see, when you become a believer, you are spiritually young. You are like a child spiritually. There's so much growing you need to do. And he says you're baptized you're put in the family you're adopted and guess what the spirit comes in and you say abba daddy papa now as you grow and mature maybe that changes I, I you know i noticed you know as my sons grew up when they were younger they'd be like daddy you know but there was one day where one of my sons he was getting kind of big he was an older guy and he walked and says, daddy i was like that's kind of weird you know like you're a big guy now you know it's, it's used in, in that sense, right? But then he says, Father. And do you know what that communicates? Close proximity again. Access. Relationship. Relational. If my sons come to me and say, Father, or they're younger, Daddy, then it's, you know what it, the response is? I'm, I'm there. Tell me what you have. And there's, a in a way, part of what's being said here. You need to work it out on a day-to-day basis, the putting on, the clothes of Christ. It's, there are going to be a lot of fights over, uh, of imitating Him. And when you need help, you have access. You have access. You cry out, Abba, Father. And by the way, I said full rights in sonship. Let me just point one other thing out. In Mark chapter 14, just before Jesus is going to be taken away for His crucifixion, He, he, he gets... Uh, in a quiet time to pray. And he's praying to his father. Do you know what he says? Abba, Father, take this cup from me. And what he's saying there is if there's a way for me to not have to go through this crucifixion, because it's weighing heavy on me, please. But if it's your will, I'm going to go through with it and I'm going to do it. That's what he says. But do you notice what he said? Abba, Father. Why could he do that? Because he's the son. And you know what Paul says? You can too. You can do the same thing as Jesus because, like him, you are a son now. That is just, it blows my mind. He's saying to you, you have the same rights as Jesus Christ. He had access to the Father, and so do you. And on a day to day basis, God's calling you. Paul's saying right here, it's going to be a struggle because. I already was talking to you about the values of the world, trying to come into the church, trying to say to you certain things about these identities are more important and you're going to wrestle with these things. And as we wrestle with them, you say, Abba, Father. Do you know what one of the main roles of the Holy Spirit is to us? Illumination of the Word of God, which means He helps us understand the words of God. When the Spirit comes to live in you, Get direction from the Father. He's written you a lot of letters. Read them. If you have trouble understanding them, ask a, an older, more mature Christian. But you can also pray, Abba, Father, help me understand. And then I try to put it into my life. Abba, Father, help me process the values of the world that seem to be grading against the values I see in your word. That's what sonship is. And honestly, he's saying you have those freedoms. You have the freedom to not Live with guilt because you think of condemnation. That's gone. And you have also the freedom to know that you are an heir. So whatever your plight in life is, you got a great afterlife. It doesn't matter if you don't make executive, you don't make the rank you want, if you don't make the money you want, if, you, if it doesn't work out. By the way, those things are so insignificant. That's what he's trying to say. The number one identity You're a child of the king of the universe. So live like that. There should be a joy within you. That's why you look at Paul, and Paul goes to prison, and he's in prison in chains. And what are they doing? Singing songs joyfully. I always had this picture of Paul hanging there. I got the joy, 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 joy down in my heart. And the guards are like, what is wrong with that guy? Because what's really important, you can't touch. What's really important is up there where... You can't get at it. It can't be stolen. It's not going to rust like my barbecue grills. I go through one every year. It's so frustrating here. I want a golden one when I get to heaven. Just I want to finish with this. I'm going to read to you 1 Peter 2, 9-10. to He says, You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Father, thank you for this letter of Paul, how he challenges us to think about what our greatest identities are sometimes when we walk in a room we think about who is the the best looking who's the most athletic who's the smartest who has the most money and we begin to think in ways of being inferior or superior to others this is not putting on Christ that when we look at our brothers and sisters in this room there's an equality about us based upon what you've done in our life. A unity based upon being baptized and adopted into the same family. And we are afforded the same privileges. Equally, we have equal privileges in Christ. And I pray that we would cling on to that greater than anything else in this world. We would live with a hope. We may not have to go to prison to be in chains and sing like Paul, but we have our own challenges. And I pray that we could display Christ, imitate him in a way that we might be a salt and light, that if we really want to change the world, that we would bring others into this saving knowledge and change their lives as they learn about this rich inheritance they have in Christ. Thank you, Lord, for your grace, for your mercy. Thank you that you've made us one people. As Peter just wrote, we are one people because of who we are in Christ. We lift it up to you with grateful hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand and worship together.